our guest speaker today, Seth McCoy. Let's give him a round of applause. Well, good morning. So my name is Seth McCoy, and uh, it was about four years ago, around this time of year, that I moved with my family from Chicago to come and serve as the youth and young adults pastor here at Woodland Hills. Um, in May of uh, last year, a group of us, along with the help of some of the leaders at Woodland, and we're going to talk a little more about that, we've been uh, planting a new church along the university corridor in the Midway and uh, Frogtown neighborhoods. Um, so it's a real pleasure for us to be able to be here with you, and i um, grateful for all the prayers of support that we've had, and uh, excited to be here to share with you. So would you join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, start talking about faith. Father, our, our hope and expectation during this time is that you would breathe life into us through your word. Um, Lord, that you would uh, give us guidance and inspiration in the ways that we're to live our lives, lives that follow you and look like your son, Jesus. Spirit, I pray that you would be active, um, not just in folks that are listening, but in me. Lord, I pray that this sermon would change and transform the way I think about the world and my faith. And we are grateful for the grace and the gifts that you give to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, well, I sort of figured uh, Jesus always started his great sermons with parables and stories. So I, I'm going to read one, if you don't mind. Um, a friend of mine recommended this book to me, actually loaned this one. It's called An Orthodox Heretic by Peter Rollins. And it's a collection of parables that kind of can help flip our thinking around about the kingdom of God and Jesus. And uh, so, if you don't mind, I'd like to read one for you. In a world where following Christ is decreed to be subversive and illegal, you have been accused of being a believer. You've been arrested and dragged before a court. You've been under surveillance for some time now, and so the prosecution has been able to build up quite a case against you. They begin the trial by offering the judge dozens of photographs that show you attending church meetings, speaking at religious events, and participating in various prayer and worship services. After this, they present a selection of items that have been confiscated from your home. Religious books that you own by Greg Boyd, worship CDs, other Christian artifacts. <laughs> then they step up the pace by displaying many of the poems and writings and journal entries that you have lovingly written concerning your faith. Finally, in closing, the prosecution offers your Bible to the judge. It's a well-worn book with scribbles and notes, drawings, and underlinings throughout. Evidence, if it were needed, that you had read and reread this sacred text many times. Throughout the case, you've been sitting silently in fear. You know deep in your heart that with the large body of evidence that has been given by the prosecution, you face the probability of a long imprisonment or even execution. At various times, you've lost all confidence and have been on the verge of standing up and denying your faith. But while this thought has been in your mind throughout the trial, you resist the temptation and remain focused. But once the prosecution has finished presenting their case, the judge turns to you and asks you if you have anything to add. But you remain silent, terrified that if you open your mouth, even for a moment, you might deny your faith. Like Christ, you remain silent before your accusers. And in response, you're led outside to wait as the judge ponders your case. Hours pass slowly as you sit under guard, 
waiting to be summoned back in. Eventually, a young man in uniform appears and leads you into the courtroom so that you can hear the verdict and word of your punishment. Once you've been seated, the judge, a harsh and unyielding man, enters the room, stands before you, looks deep into your eyes, and begins to speak. Of the charges that have been brought forward, I find you, the accused, not guilty. Not guilty? Your heart freezes. Then in a split second, the fear and terror that you were experiencing before are swallowed up by confusion and rage. Despite the surroundings, you stand defiantly before the judge and demand that he give an account concerning why you were innocent of the charges in light of all the evidence. What evidence, the judge replies in shock. What about my journal entries, you reply. They simply show that you like to write, not much more than that. What about the services I spoke at, the times I wept in church, the long, sleepless nights of prayer? Well, evidence you're a good speaker, an actor, nothing more, replies the judge. It's obvious that you deluded those around you, and perhaps at times you even deluded yourself, but this foolishness is not enough to convict you in a court of law. This is madness, you shout. It would seem that no evidence would convince you. Not so, replies the judge. The court is indifferent towards your Bible reading and church attendance. It doesn't have any concern for worship with words and a pen. Continue to work out your theology. Use it to paint beautiful pictures of love. We don't have any such interest in armchair artists who spend their time making images of a better world. We exist only for those who would lay down that brush and their life to create a better world. So until you live as Christ and his followers did, until you challenge this system and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames, until then, my friend, you are no problem to us. I read that story because as I've listened to the series so far on faith, and even as I think about faith with me and some members of our own community, it's a reminder that when we say faith, it, we mean more than what we believe. We kind of have a problem because we use one word, faith, to mean lots of different things. For instance, I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife, and that doesn't really have anything to do with whether I believe my wife is real or I believe that we're really married. That has to do with the way that I carry myself towards her. Now, it is important that when we talk about faith, there are times when it's very important to talk about what we believe. I mean, even in the series, those are serious and difficult questions. But there's another side of faith which I would define as trust to the point of obedience. Let's say this glass of water is faith. One of the challenges that I had is that I grew up in a pretty conservative and fundamentalist church. And the most important thing uh, about that church, or the most important thing for me, was it was important that I believe that the Bible was the absolute, inerrant, inspired word of God, every bit of it. And to have faith meant to believe that same thing. The challenge, and I think Greg Boyd addressed this a couple of weeks ago in a sermon about, called the House of Cards, is there are times when I didn't believe the Bible was really real. And if my faith is only built on Scripture, the problem is then my whole faith came caving in. But I would say there's more than just that. Like, if, if this glass was faith, there's a few different legs that hold up this stool. Um, when I was a, uh, helping to plant a church in Detroit about um, eight years ago, uh, my wife was worried because I had a mole on my ear that she was worried about. But she's worried about lots of stuff. She told me to go to the doctor. I didn't really listen to her. Finally, I decided in an effort to appease her that I would go. So I went to the dermatologist, and they took a sample and said, we'll call you. Um, so the day after the 4th of July holiday, I get a call back, and they said, I'm sorry to inform you that that, uh, that mole is malignant melanoma. 
And I thought, no big deal, they'll cut a part off. And so I Googled malignant melanoma, and I saw that somewhere around 80% of people that get that end up dying within the first five years. And I was empty. I was planting a church and a pastor, and in this situation, I, I didn't have any faith to muster. All I had in my heart was fear. The guy who was the senior pastor of the church came into my office the next day, and I kind of talked with him about it. And he prayed for me, and I'll never forget one thing that he said. When he prayed, he asked God if he could loan me some of his faith, that he would add his faith to my faithless heart. And so to me, Scripture is one thing that we base our faith on. But I think the other thing that we base our faith on is community. Where is there a community around us that when we've run out of faith can loan us some of theirs? This same church, it was a charismatic, a Pentecostal church. And uh, there's, I could tell you some funny stories about services and things that I went to and sermons. And, um, but it did seem like the, sort of some of the goal was if the preacher can just preach a sermon that's hot enough and if he sweats enough in his forehead and wipes it off and if the music's hot, then the spirit's moving. And that's how we grew our faith. And there's a lot of parts about that that I don't really agree with anymore. But I can't really deny that one winter time at a, at a camp for students, there was a guy speaking at our snow camp. Um, I wasn't really there t- to listen to God or to hear God. I was mostly there because I heard that there was hot chicks at this camp. And so I spent most of my time pursuing, you know, the weekend love of my life. And uh, we're in the last session. I haven't really been listening because there's a pretty girl that's sitting in front of me that I keep fooling with. Her. You know, like the 10th grade way to flirt that's just actually annoying. And get ready to close the service, and the preacher just said, while he was praying, he said, God, some of the people in this room right now, you're, you're speaking to because you want them to devote their life to, to full-time preaching and teaching ministry. And I still can't deny it that I had a very clear sense that God was speaking to me and that that was me. And so at the end of the day, sometimes when I read the Bible, I still have difficulties with it. But my faith isn't just made up of what I believe about Scripture anymore. My faith is rooted in a community that can loan me some of theirs. And I can refer back to experiences that I've had when I had a sense that God was speaking directly to me. That faith can be held up and supported by all those things. Now, um, we're going to look at a Scripture verse in Mark chapter 2 in just a minute. But before I do that... um, when we first started talking about planting a church in May, and I was going to have to take a leap of faith to uh, sort of finish my time and my job here, the safety of uh, getting a paycheck on payday, that was a very nice thing. Um, while we were doing that, there was a group of people that were helping me figure out whether this was a risk that I was supposed to take. There's two friends who I was particularly close with that were very influential in that. And about five months later or so, Um, they didn't really want to have much to do with our community. And that was a real crisis for me. These people that I really trust and care about didn't really want to be a part of it. We spent a lot of time talking since then, and the other day, one of them came to me and said, I really felt like the Lord spoke to me through uh, these certain verses. Um, And we're actually going to take a look at those, and then we're going to talk about how that story finished and what this means about faith. So it's Mark chapter 2. So, pretty early on in Jesus' ministry, in chapter 2, verse 13, um, Jesus is just beginning his ministry and trying to figure out how he's going to go about doing this thing. And here he says, Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. 
As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax collector's booth. So we have two characters, Jesus and a tax collector. How much do you think they believed the same things about the world and about faith? Probably not a whole lot. So Jesus says, uh, follow me and be my disciple, he said. And Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of his kind among Jesus' followers. That's always good to remember. When the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this... there's sometimes in the Bible where I wish I could be a fly on the wall and just see what was going on. I want to see the look on Jesus' face. When they say, why do you hang out with scum? I could just imagine him rolling his, <laughs> okay, Father, I really want to punch these guys. <laughs> Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. I guess all this to say that Like, faith can come after following. I'm not sure how much faith Levi had. I'm not sure how much his beliefs were lined up with Jesus's. I'd probably say they weren't very close. And we can even look at the whole group of disciples and realize they all did not believe the same things. But maybe part of discovering faith isn't just an intellectual ability to deal with the facts. Um, Maybe part of faith comes as we follow Jesus. Maybe within a community like Woodland and a community like ours, there can be room for people to discover faith while they're following along with us. Okay, Um, second thing I want to say is that I think faith is deeply relational. It's like if, if someone says that they don't believe in God, God is not just a general idea. He's not this sort of detached member up in the universe that it's fine if you agree or disagree with the fact that he exists. It's a deeply relational thing. To say I believe in God doesn't mean I believe certain things about God. To say I have faith in God um, means that I can trust him. Uh, An author that wrote a book uh, told a little story about this, so I'm going to share it with you. Um, Some years ago, my wife arranged for us to ride in a hot air balloon as a birthday gift. That does not sound like much of a gift to me. We went to the field where the balloons ascended. We got into a little basket with one other couple. We introduced ourselves and swapped vocational information. Then our pilot began the ascent. The day had just dawned. It was clear, crisp, cloudless. We could see the entire valley from the canyons all the way out to the Pacific. It was scenic, inspiring, and majestic. But I also experienced one emotion that I had not expected. Want to guess what it was? Yeah, fear. I always thought those baskets went about chest high, but this one came up to about my knees. (laughs) One good lurch would be enough to throw someone over the side, so I held on with grim determination and white knuckles. I looked over at my wife, who doesn't really care for heights, and I relaxed for a minute, knowing there was someone in the basket who was more tense than I was. (laughs) I could tell because she would not move. At all. During part of our flight, there was a horse ranch that was on the ground directly behind her. I pointed it out because she loves horses. And without turning around or even moving her head, she simply rolled her eyes in that direction as far as she could and said, yes, it's beautiful. (laughs) 
About this time, I decided I'd like to get to know the kid who was flying this balloon. I realized I could try to psych myself up into believing everything would be fine, but the truth is we had all placed our lives and destinies in the hands of the pilot. Everything depended on him. I asked him what he did for a living, how he got started flying hot air balloons. I was hoping his former job was going to be one full of responsibilities, a neurosurgeon perhaps, (laughs) an astronaut who missed his calling in space. I knew we were in trouble when his response to me began, dude, it's like this. <laughs> he, he didn't even have a job. He mostly surfed. He said the reason he started flying hot air balloons was that he had been driving around in his pickup when he'd had too much to drink, crashed the truck, and badly injured his brother. His brother still couldn't get around too well, so they would watch hot air balloons together. It gave him something to do. By the way, he added, if things get a little choppy on the way down, don't be surprised. I've never flown this one before, and I'm not really sure how it's going to (laughs) handle. My wife looked over at me and said, you mean to tell me we're a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk? (laughs) Then the wife of the other couple looked at me and spoke. It was the only words either of them were to utter throughout the entire flight. You're a pastor. Do something religious. So I took an offering. (laughs) So he goes on. The great question at a moment like this is, can I trust the pilot? I could try telling myself everything would turn out okay. Facing the flight with a positive mental attitude. But the real issue concerned the dude who was flying this thing. Were his character and competence such that I could confidently place my destiny in his hands? Approaching faith isn't saying I'm going to positively, generally think about how my life is going to unfold. I think it deeply becomes the question of who can I trust with my life? Can at the end of the day I trust that God cares for me? Which can be hard to do when you don't have very much faith. Let's look at a story uh, in Luke chapter 24. Uh, I mean, I think that we could argue, anyone could argue, I think the story of the prodigal son is by far the most brilliant story that Jesus told. Uh, But this story that we're going to read is, I guess I would describe it as, if any of the gospel writers ever tried to capture the whole message and meaning of Jesus in one story, I think this is the most beautiful picture that gets painted in the scriptures. Um, So let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. So Jesus has already been crucified um, and has already resurrected back in Jerusalem. But that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. I mean, the irony of this situation. Why are they so sad? (coughs) The death of Jesus was devastating to his followers. I mean, his message the whole time was that he was going to deliver his people from their suffering. It's what they expected of him. And instead of him delivering his people from suffering, he ended up suffering at the hands of his own enemies. It makes you call into question everything that he said and did. 
Okay, let's pick it back up. They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, it's, most scholars agree that uh, the two are probably husband and wife, so we get the husband's name here. Cleopas replied, um, <laughs> you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that have happened there the last few days. Jesus, so funny, what things? Well, what do you mean by that? The things that happened to Jesus from Nazareth, dummy, they said. He was a prophet. He did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Listen to the sadness of the next three words. We had hoped. Hope is now a past tense phrase for these two. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Don't know what we think now. This all happened three days ago. But then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who, who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. <coughs> then Jesus said to them, Foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? See, for Jesus, he knew he wasn't just ending their suffering. He was going to end their suffering by suffering. That's a good lesson for us to remember. This symbol that's behind me that's identified Christians for centuries is the symbol of suffering and the symbol of victory at the same time. Through suffering, suffering is defeated. Let's pick it back up. Okay, then Jesus, I'm sort of halfway down, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If there was ever a sermon I want to hear, or like a Bible class I want to take, that's the one, where Jesus says, I'm going to show you all through this what was happening. Let's keep going. By this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, see if you've ever heard any language like this before. He took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly what happened? Eyes were open. They recognized him. And then as soon as they recognized him, then what does he do? See ya. He's gone. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Um, the part about this story that stands out the most to me is in the middle of their losing of their faith, that phrase, we had hoped, but did you notice that when he said that some women saw him and angels and then the guys went there too and they didn't see the body, that wasn't yet enough for them. It wasn't like, oh, we had hoped and now we hope again. It was, we had hoped, but our hearts were broken and it's going to take a lot more than some news and testimony for us to regain our faith. And does Jesus wait for them to find all the right scientific evidence that his resurrection actually happened? No, what does he do? He shows up. He restores their faith. This faith is relational. Jesus opens their eyes. Jesus lights a fire in their hearts. 
Jesus takes the bread and breaks it. I mean, it, to me, it's almost as if you can describe the whole interaction of God with human beings right there. Because to be honest, there's been times when we all could say, we had hoped. I really had hoped that this part of my life would change. Now, it's always good when you hear language like we heard about breaking bread, that you always try to, it's called the, the law of the first mention. You rewind as far back in the story as you can to find that same kind of language and see if there's a connection that's there. So, um, in this story, you have a husband and a wife, um, and they sit down with God to share a meal. Where, where's the first time we see a husband and a wife sharing a meal in the Bible? It did not work out very well, Right? Eve finds the apple, she eats it, Adam eats it. What happens to the relationship of faith? It's broken. And now here's Jesus resurrected, breaking bread, blessing it, opening their eyes, lighting a fire in their hearts. In a lot of ways, language like this in the scriptures is where we get this idea that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection ended an old age and started a brand new one. The old world is dying, dead and leaving. And a whole new world has come. And this new world is beautiful. It's exciting. It's adventurous. It's the world of faith. But it will take Jesus to guide us into this new world. It takes Jesus to open our eyes. Because to be honest, there's lots of times I don't recognize them either. Um, so in some ways the question is, what, what holds us back from throwing ourselves wholeheartedly into this new beautiful world of excitement, of adventure, of life, of meaning? Well, it's the challenge that often gets talked about here at Woodland, that we wish that the old world was not just dead, but we wish it was gone. Right? I mean, I've been watching the news unfold in Egypt and other places in the Middle East where there's an uprising and it seems pretty apparent that the, that the rule of this dictator is over, but don't dictators hold on as long as they possibly can? Well, this world's a bit like that. Not only is it trying to hold on to the world as long as it can, it's trying to hold on to you and me as long as it can. Keep your eyes closed. Don't dare let Jesus light your heart on fire. Now, I don't know about you, but something that holds me back from throwing myself wholeheartedly into this new adventure that is faith in the kingdom is fear. At the end of the day, I'm still afraid. When my doctor calls me and says, you have malignant melanoma, and I look and see there's a good chance that I'm going to die, how do I feel? Sadly to say, my first instinct wasn't faith and hope. My first instinct was fear. And what do we fear? We still fear death. Because there's still a part of this old world that holds on to us. Now, uh, in last year in May, um, I was working together with a group of people in our community and a group of people here at Woodland Hills to figure out, are we supposed to, am I especially supposed to risk my job and safety and security to plant a new church? <coughs> And so I was gathered with a group of people, and I'll never forget the day when I just had to fess up and say, the reason why I'm not doing it is because I'm really scared. And they looked back at me and said, scared of what? 
I mean, I wasn't jumping out of an airplane or planting a new church. That's not that dangerous. Well, it is if you think, um, if, if you think of what happens and how you'll feel about yourself if you fail. See, part of the adventure of faith is, um, is the opportunity to see that failure is an option and to prepare yourself for it. I don't like failure. Um, now, in our, in our living room at our house, you know, we have couches and tables, and then we have this little magical box on a table that has images that come up that we like to watch. And then, amazingly, like when I was little, if you wanted to adjust the image, you'd have to, like, get out of your seat and go change it. But some brilliant person got an epiphany. The Lord spoke to them, and they created this little plastic thing that you would hold in your hand. And ever since that thing was created... It's, uh, it's been the curse of humankind in my family forever. I don't know how many fights have been started because of this little device. Um, I even heard there was a television company that, like, so for instance, it's a crisis if this device gets lost because you're not going to get up from your couch to change it. So, so you know, like Jesus told the story of a woman that lost a coin, and so... Uh, in my house, if you lose a remote, you just take the couch outside. You just get all the furniture out until you find this thing because it's so important to you. Um, and the remote control is a perfect image of this old world that's dying because we like control. We want to control. Um, and then instead of calling us to risk an adventure, it calls us to live out someone else's adventure played out on a screen, Right? Like, I went to, uh, I was, I, I had to get some glasses yesterday because I broke mine the other day, and I'm waiting for them to make my lenses, and so I walk over, there's an electronic store, a big one that's going out of business, and they're having a sale, and I like electronic things, so I was going to go over and take a look. But I was sort of surprised that they had furniture there. So, you know, there's this huge, I don't 152-inch plasma LCD Blu-ray TV, right? And then in front of it, there's a chair, very comfortable-looking chair, um, and I thought it was funny. Do you know what the name of that chair is? It's called the Lazy Boy. And, like, there's a reason why it's named that, right? Because um, in, in a lot of ways in our world, this is exactly what we get invited to. Don't risk anything, for goodness sake. Grab control, have a seat, and watch someone else do it. Um... Okay, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. A very familiar story. Let's take a look at it. So Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up in the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble. This is a theme, right? As long as Jesus is around, things are kind of okay. As soon as Jesus leaves, the disciples are always in trouble. Um... Sounds a lot like me. Uh, a strong wind had risen. They were fighting heavy waves. About 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them, walking on the water. Now, I think anyone who has any familiarity with the Bible, this phrase can sort of pass in our ears and back out of our ears. But, like, pause for a second. Jesus is walking on water. Um, just another instance when it seems like Jesus just lives in a different world. Jesus lives in the new world. The one that's vibrant and thrilling and exciting. The one that's not old and bored and tired and dying. Right? Let's see what world the disciples are in. What are they in? 
They're in a boat, a boring old boat, right? The disciples saw him walking on the water. They were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. I wonder what a ghost was like for a first century Jewish person in Palestine. But Jesus spoke to them at once. And what does he say? He says, don't be afraid. Um, I'm not sure. I think I've heard it said that like that phrase, don't be afraid or fear not, is the most often quoted word in scripture or most often said phrase. And the reason it is is because we are all afraid. But the new world doesn't have any room for fear because the new world doesn't have any room for death. And so fear isn't part of the new world. Okay, let's keep going. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. Then Peter called to him. If it's really you, tell me to come to you. Walk on the water. Come on, Jesus said. So Peter went over to the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. We all know what happens after that. After a great moment of success, then Peter fails, and a lot like you and I do. But at least he got a few steps in the new world. Okay, I'm going to say this is the most profound thing I'm going to say the whole day. It took me a lot of theological studying and Greek working out. Um, So here it is. If you want to walk on water, then you're going to have to get out of the boat. Um, Funny thing is that's the title of a book, and the guy who wrote that book was in the hot air balloon with his wife taking an offering. So I didn't come up with anything, but but it's true. The funny thing is, I wonder how the rest of the 11 disciples who never even tried to get out of the boat felt. Maybe that boat had lazy boys in it. I don't know. Maybe they were sitting around there. Like, a whole part of faith is for sure belief. But part of faith is a whole new, beautiful, exciting world has sprung up from the ground in Jesus' resurrection and is calling out and inviting you to participate in it. But it takes risk. Jesus was teaching the disciples in another uh, environment. And he was telling them, he was talking about this difference between the two worlds. He said, like, okay, over here in this world, people worry about what they're going to eat. People worry about what kind of clothes they can wear. People worry about whether they have homes. And Jesus said, that's, that's the old world. Don't, don't worry about that. And then he gets to the end and he says, don't fear The Father is happy. It makes the Father happy to give you the kingdom. The Father is delighted to give you this new world that he's created. Fear leads to slow death. Like, get out of the boat. At least it's the worst that can happen is you're going to die. At least die, try something worth dying for. Faith is an adventure. Okay, some questions I have for you. You don't have to write these down. Maybe these are things to think about in the next few moments, in the next few days. Um, One of them is pretty simple. When is the last time being close to Jesus has lit you on fire on the inside? 
When's the last time that you could say someone to say to someone else, my heart was, it was burning inside of me because of this Jesus? Because I can be tempted like lots of people can. I can think about Jesus in a very theological front. What was Jesus trying to do? What was his dream and vision? How was Jesus unique as a first century rabbi and priest? That's good. There's a place for that. But when has Jesus lit you on fire on the inside? And if it's been a long time, then you should think about that. How are you creating space in your life where Jesus can open your eyes, set your heart on fire, and offer you his love and care? In what way is Jesus inviting you out of the boat of that old world to step beyond fear and into this beautiful new adventure called the kingdom of God? How are you deepening relationships with people that are around you that can encourage, enrich, and sometimes loan you the faith that you need? Let's pray. Actually, would you stand? And as you stand, I'm going to ask for the prayer teams to come forward. If you need prayer about anything that you're sensing from this message or something that you're going through in your own life, um, these people have gifts that can be helpful to you. So, Okay. Jesus, I ask that you would set our hearts on fire. That, our, um, that you would help take away our fear that we would have courage because you're here. That when, when we lose our hope, when we used to hope in this thing but we're not sure anymore, that you would walk alongside of us and open our eyes. That like you did to Peter, that you invite us out of that boat of fear and comfort and invite us to taste this new, exciting, brilliant world Help us to form communities where we can care for each other, where we can loan each other faith. Make scripture come alive to us in a way that's fresh and new. God, give us the ability to be able to trust you, not just in specific situations, um, but to trust you to the point where we can be obedient to your way of life. We pray for your peace, in, not just in the world, in our own hearts that seem divided between fear and faith. Um, give us hope that something new can happen even within us. In your name, amen. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. Have a good week.